Well, goody, goody, goody. It's time again for me to have the opportunity to spend a little time with you, my fellow happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show. And above all, thank you, each and every one of you, doing such a fabulous job promoting the show, telling other people about it. It's working great. We've got new listeners just this past week, new listeners from Thailand, Saudi Arabia, believe that one, Saudi Arabia. Um, several new listeners in South Korea, uh, a new listener in Pakistan. Crazy. I mean, I, I wonder if it's even legal to listen to me in Pakistan. I'd like to. I'd like to be able to post in my promotional material. Banned in Pakistan. You can hear the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. Banned in Pakistan. Well, as far as I know, we're not actually banned yet in Pakistan, but one can but hope. And uh, how does the world really work? Well, one of the ways that the work really works is that theories are advanced, whether it's by scientists or just by you and me, in an effort, in an ongoing effort to find out how the world works, to understand the world in which we live, we all come up with theories uh, from when we're little kids which little by little we uh, subject to the tests of time and experience and we modify them and we change them. And so um, I, I actually remember when I was a little kid, I actually came up with the idea that there's such a thing as tiny little people. And uh, the, uh, the stereo, like we just had one radio in the house uh, I grew up in Africa, and there was no television at the time in Africa. And uh, and I I came up with this theory. And look, no, I wasn't seventeen. This was I was about five. That there must be a whole race of tiny little people that live inside my parents' stereo, and they got a little orchestra in there. They got announcers, and those are the people who make the sound come out. Okay, so. I don't think a lot of time went by, you know, before I, I started getting, uh, asking people about it and discovering that there's such a thing called radio waves. And I didn't know what any of that meant at all. But at least I, I got rid of my theory that there are tiny little people inside the stereo player. And so uh, uh, you do this all the time, you know, science did it, trees. How do trees grow? Like, where does all that come from? You take a tiny little acorn, put it in the ground, and if this happened in 10 minutes, you would regard it as the most miraculous magic trick of all time. Namely, it's, it, it turns into a 60-foot-high tree with hundreds and hundreds of bored feet of lumber, enough timber in a an oak tree to build a house and all this from an acorn so where does all that matter come from I mean, it's a it's a good question and that's one that also bothered me when i was a little kid but i wasn't the only one uh, for hundreds of years 
human beings were baffled, thinking human beings were baffled by this. And for the longest time, everyone assumed that the tree was extracting material from the earth. And so that wood is just reconstituted earth somehow, that the tree swallows the earth and then regurgitates it in the form of these wood fibers that have all these wonderful qualities. Well, you know, the, the theory gets put to the test. And one of the ways it was put to the test was uh, planting an acorn in a, uh, a planter, which was carefully weighed and isolated from everything else and given nothing but sunlight and water. And um, what happens? Months and months go by, a few years go by, and there's a huge tree uh, that, that weighs a lot. In fact, because this whole experiment is conducted on a scale, they can see how much more it weighs now than it did when the experiment started. And then they take the tree out and carefully shake off all the earth on the roots back into the pot, into the planter. And then they carefully weigh it. And amazingly, the weight is exactly the same as it was when the experiment started. Clearly, these, you know, by this time, there was about 300 pounds of wood on the tree. The 300 pounds of wood didn't come from the earth because the weight of the earth didn't change during this experiment. Wow. Uh, incredibly, if you think about it, how marvelous it is that uh, time goes by and nothing is taken from the earth and out comes a whole lot of wood. Where does it come from? Well, just sunlight, which provides the energy for the conversion, and water and air. So what is the chemical symbol for wood? Well, it's mostly cellulose. So that would be C6H12O6, I think. It's nothing but a bunch of carbon, a bunch of hydrogen, and a bunch of oxygen. Namely, exactly what you get in air, right? There's carbon dioxide in air. So the tree breathes in carbon dioxide, and it takes in oxygen from the air as well, and from the carbon dioxide, and it gets in hydrogen, and there's, uh, from, from the water that we feed in, there's plenty water, there's plenty hydrogen. And with the energy given by the sunlight, the tree converts air plus H2O into C6H12O6, carbon, a mixture of six atoms of carbon, six atoms of hydrogen, 12 atoms of hydrogen, six atoms of carbon. I think that's the, the number. Details aren't important. I th I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, but the point being that this was discovered over the course of time. Okay. Um, how about atoms? The idea that if you break um, a, a piece of iron down into a tiny little iron filing, and then you try and break that further, it'll become smaller pieces of iron, and then you try and break them down, eventually you're going to get to such a small tiny fragment of iron that if you try and break it down any further, theoretically, because you couldn't really do this, um, it wouldn't be iron anymore. It would become something else. What would the something else be? Well, today we know electrons, protons, neutrons, and a little bit of nuclear energy dropped in for good measure. But, uh, but the Greeks, we're talking about, you know, five, six hundred BC. The, the, Greeks, the Greeks knew that there's something that they called atoms. That was originally a Greek uh, word. And that is like the smallest block 
of matter of, of anything there could be and they came to the conclusion you know how children's little boys building blocks i'm going to say little boys building blocks because uh, my own experience is that boys like playing with building blocks girls really have not that much interest in building blocks unless you can shape them into a house and uh, boys building blocks you know come in different shapes and sizes there's long narrow ones there's cylindrical ones there's square uh, rectangular ones there's cubic ones and um, and these are wonderful toys you know a big box of different shaped pieces of wood uh, i love those things i still like them so um, the Greeks thought, you know, the difference between different substances is when you go down to their most basic elemental form, they, the original atom, they're just different shapes. Anyways, you know, lots of time went by, hundreds and hundreds of years went by. And finally, uh, a guy called Dalton said, no, it's, it's not exactly like that. Uh, these things are all sort of basically the same shape, slightly different sizes, but they are mainly distinguished by the number of things there are inside them protons and electrons and so this is now the beginning of the 19th century 1808 it was this guy called dalton um said you know atoms are like blueberry muffins he didn't exactly say that that's my description but that's what he meant they like blueberry muffins and there's sort of solid stuff there and then dotted around in it are electrons those are the blueberries and um, and then nearly 100 years go by to the end of the 19th century, a man called Thompson. Uh, these are all Englishmen professors. He was professor at Cambridge. So 1898 or something, Thompson comes up, says, no, um, it's not a blueberry shape. It's it's like a central um, heavy little nucleus and then there's electrons flying around the outside. And from there, we get the familiar atomic um logo that you now see everywhere with sort of orbits of electrons flying around the central thing that thompson was the first to say that look these original models they don't hold up when you examine them in the light of what we know and the passage of time and experiments they don't hold up this is what it is well uh, rutherford uh, about 20 years later early 20th century also an Englishman, came up with a Rutherford model, and that was pretty close to where we are today already. So this is before World War One. Yeah, before World War One, Rutherford said, yeah, it's, it's orbits, and there are different levels of orbits. Some electrons are at lower energy, or any, we don't need the details. But uh, 1913, it sort of finally gets locked into shape by uh, a Danish physicist called Niels Bohr, and the basis for uh, uh, for quantum mechanics was formed, understood, and this, of course, um, made the nuclear bomb that uh, leveled Nagasaki and uh, before a few days before that Hiroshima in August 1945, bringing an end to World War II and making an invasion which would have been unbelievably costly for both Americans and Japanese. Um, the Japanese had actually decided to make the staving off the invasion a suicide deal. They were going to mobilize 100 million Japanese civilians to get to the beaches where the Americans were going to land, and it was going to just be body after body after body. The name of the campaign in Japanese was, by the way, the glorious death of 100 million people.
That's that's what they called it. So the uh, along came the atom bomb, all because of the work of Dalton and Thompson and Rutherford and then Niels Bohr, and little by so it, it took you could say uh, a thousand or more years, but it actually you know more realistically when people began seriously focusing on it, um, it took uh, over a hundred years to get a better and more accurate idea of what an atom looked like. And uh, I tell you all of that only in order to tell you this. You've got to be willing to uh, be skeptical about things that science tells you or things that experts tell you. And you've heard me say this before. It's not that scientific principles aren't true. Um, uh, Something like Isaac Newton's uh, equations of motion um, his, his principles, his laws of motion, they're right, they're true. Laws of gravitation, they're true. Niels Bohr's model of the atom, yep, that's true. It's not science that you've got to be cautious about, it's scientists, because it is possible to get a scientist to give his expert opinion on almost anything you want. Because like anything else, expert opinions are for sale. So if you are willing to study science, that's wonderful. You know, I have no, no problem with anybody accepting and understanding and knowing how science works. It's, it's a vital part of knowing how the world really works, of course. But be very careful with science. You've got to be very careful because uh, science will tell you exactly what you wanted through the voice of scientists who may even believe what they're saying but uh you know there is um, wish fulfillment bias in science as there is in everything else um, i tell you all this because i want to tell you again just a little bit of clarity about money and it does mean that you've got to be an honest scientist which means If there is anything that is true about science, it is that it has to be open to skepticism. It is not scientific to yell at people and say, you're a denier, right? I've been called a climate denier. Whoa, 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 boo-hoo. It's ruined my day. Uh, Because that's rubbish. People in science who question something were heroes. Of course, in this day of political correctness, that is not the case. You may not question, you may not challenge, but in real science, you question all the time. And so there are ideas about money, where it comes from, what it is, what it does, and um, I am going to uh, show you a different approach to money. It will require you to have intellectual openness, uh, you you must overcome your cognitive dissonance. You have to basically be willing to say, gee, the four years I spent studying economics may not have been the really the best investment of my time because it turns out a lot of what they told me isn't even true. Uh, that's hard to do, but at least be open to the idea. Okay, so uh, what is money? Money is one part of a process that the good Lord put in place to make sure that his children would interact with one another and would not remain isolated and aloof from one another. See? Concept. And so, 
how do we do that and what's the idea well the good lord said i'm going to use two systems to incentivize people to interact with one another and uh, one of these systems is money and the other one is sex okay to put it direct in other words uh, male and female relationships for the younger listeners if you like what does this mean um, it means that uh, the good lord said okay fine i'm going to set up a system which is going to allow human beings to gratify their desires for stuff for things for survival for food and drink and shelter and clothing and hey nice clothing i'm going to set it up that people can uh, indulge their desire for those things with the absolute minimum amount of hard work because i know i've created creatures who are essentially at heart lazy who do not love hard work but i'm going to teach them to build up the discipline and the willpower to undertake hard work and i'm going to teach them the advantages of money because if you just use a barter system and you just take care of yourself and you plant things and grow things and you make shoes and you weave fabric for clothing, you are going to be one very, very busy bee 24-7 for your whole life. But if you learn to interact with other people and you learn to serve other people, then you discover that that process of serving other people creates value which we can measure in terms of certificates of performance that you may call money and if that's not enough i have another way to ensure that people will not be alone isolated and aloof from one another and that is called male female relationships i'm going to teach people that one of the nicest things for a woman is to be tied to a man and one of the greatest things for a man is to have his own woman. It's just wonderful. It's like having a best friend for life. It's a fantastic thing. And it gets even better than that, as every mature adult knows. But you've got to realize how to do that. And so these two things, if you like money and marriage, if you like the alliterativeness of uh, the two M's, money and marriage are the two mechanisms that the good lord provided us as methodologies to make it possible for human beings to prefer to be together with one another rather than isolated and alone from one another and there are very strong similarities between those two things let me tell you five basic similarities between money and marriage if you like male female relationships um, let me tell them to you about money. First of all, here they are, the, f the five. Number one, you've got to interact with another person. You literally cannot make money on your own. Can't be done. You've got you got, basically got to serve another person. Number two, communication helps bring about the transaction. If you can talk effectively, then yes, you're able to bring about a transaction. Number three, focus on needs and satisfaction of the other person. We call this customer service. Number four, uh, what is... What you're looking for in that monetary transaction is ultimately spiritual, not merely physical. And that's because money isn't physical. It's a sign. It's an abstract measure of something that can't be put on a scale. It's having delivered value. If I give you advice and you pay my fee, 
what's happened there? We have a wonderful relationship. I've served you, and I'm excited about that. You owe me nothing because you paid me for it, and all we have left is this abstract relationship. It's purely spiritual, and we're both happy for it. And that brings me to number five. Both parties emerge from that interaction better off and happier than they were before. Okay? You know, I'll give you one more. I'll throw in a sixth one just as a bonus. Um, There are fluctuations in, if you like, the power dynamics of the interaction. What do I mean by that? Sometimes the seller is more eager. Sometimes the buyer doesn't want to miss an out on, a, on an opportunity. Occasionally, both share a mutual and equal desire for the consummation of the transaction. So you remember the five, the six, need to interact with another person. Communication helps bring about the transaction. You've got to focus on the needs and satisfaction of the other side, the other party. Number four, what is, what is desired is actually spiritual, not physical. Number five, both parties come out happier than before. And number six, there are fluctuations in the power dynamics of the relationship. Now, let's look at those exact same six for male-female relationships. For the fulfillment of a man and a woman being together, number one, you've got to interact with another person. Can't do it by yourself. Number two, communication helps bring about the trans... By the way, I know what you're thinking in number one, but uh, I will cover it very shortly, particularly in the area of spiritual. It's one of the problems. You may think, oh, well, I can do this without another person. It's spiritually vacuous, and, and it provides only more hunger, provides no ultimate satisfaction at all. Uh, no fulfillment. Number two, communication helps bring about the transaction. Sure, right? When uh, um, when I was a student in England, it was called chatting up the bird. Right? You've got to be able to talk to girls. Number three, uh, and this is in a more developed relationship, focusing on the needs and satisfaction of the other person. That's a huge part of it. And somebody who never learns that um, remains hungry in this area all his life because there is never fulfillment if you don't realize that your fulfillment depends on the other person's satisfaction. And number four, uh, what we're looking for, it's the same number four as I had for money, right? Number four is what, is what you're desiring is ultimately spiritual, not merely physical. And this is crucial um, because, right, if you think about it, um, in, uh, in, in, in some countries, uh, they, they sell, and I, I need to put this as uh, tastefully as I possibly can, uh, they sell um, life-size dolls. I don't have to tell you that the overwhelming majority of the market for those things are men, not women. I think you'd probably know that already without me. Uh, and furthermore, that ultimately they provide no joy at all. Why? Because the ultimate joy is when the other party expresses pleasure and satisfaction. And so whilst the doll may well be able to provide friction, it certainly has no ability to receive pleasure. It can't possibly respond meaningfully to your customer service, if I can sort of jump between metaphors there. Um, Number five was both parties come out of the interaction better off than they were before. I don't have to tell you. That's obvious. And finally, the power dynamics shift, right? Well, yeah, sometimes he is trying to win her or to please her. Sometimes it's the reverse and often in the best of times, uh, both at the same time. 
So it's it's really really very very worthwhile. Um, Eric Fromm, who was a uh, a Jewish psychologist who um, uh, moved to New York to escape Nazi persecution, wrote a book called The Art of Loving, and he said that um, uh, loving requires knowledge and effort. It's it's like anything else. He said uh, falling in love is easy. But standing in love is something else altogether. Uh, to stand in love, you, 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 you have to be trained. You have to be taught. You have to know how to do it. You've got to have discipline, maturity, faith. All of these things needed for maintaining a business as well. So um, I think you, you, you get that concept, right? There, there is a strong similarity. These two things, you know, money, whatever they told you in Econ 101, uh, it's a method of exchange, etc., etc. Yeah, 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 yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But in reality, we know what it is. It is a huge blessing that incentivizes people to interact with one another. Fantastic. That's one of the reasons that uh, uh, financial success is very much linked to the size of your connection list not friends on facebook but real friends people people who would return your phone call within 24 hours um okay people like that the more you have in your life or or to put it directly the more people who know you like you and trust you the better off you you will be in your money making enterprises uh, do i sound very mercenary uh, look, I'm I'm delighted to have everybody trying to make money. There is literally no more harmless activity that you could be engaged in to please me and that I could be engaged to please you. There are so many other things you could be doing and that I could be doing that we won't like. You could be out there rioting. You could be out there in political power over me. You could be doing so many things. And it's really quite wonderful that all you're trying to do is make money. Because the only way you can do that is you can't extract it from me by force. Right? You can only do it by pleasing me. And there we are back again to the similarity between money and marriage. And um, I also wanted to clarify one other thing. And I've often spoken about the fact that uh, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, are disproportionately good with money. And um, and I, I, I want to clarify something that's really, really important. Um, you know that uh, I have now started having available for you on my website um, a Bible which I recommend. I've been talking about this, and uh, I do so again because it is a terrific Bible. Now, those of you who are all around the world, I'm really, really sorry. Uh, I do not have an ability to ship a Bible to you if you are far away uh, in another country. The only thing I can recommend that you do is that uh, you get a bookshop in your neighborhood uh, to carry this Bible, and they will then go through the difficulties of importing it to your country and making it available to you. Another option is that you might have a friend and for who, who knows, there may even be a happy warrior who you get in contact with through our website. And you might find somebody who'd be willing to buy it and ship it to you. 
All of these things are possibilities, but in terms of getting it from the website, we call it Rabbi Daniel Lappin's Recommended Bible, okay? And you'll see it on the store at rabbidaniellappin.com. But um, if you have it already, I'll give you page numbers for what I want to show you. Um, the uh, the word, the, I want to tell you a sentence. Okay, it's chapter Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, okay? And in my recommended Bible, this is on page 6 and 7. 6 is the Hebrew, 7 is the English. And what's great about this is that uh, you can actually look and see even though you can't read Hebrew, it doesn't matter because you can still recognize words and you'll be able to see that, no, I am not fabricating this. I'm telling you only the truth. Listen to verse 15. And the Lord God took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it. That's right. To work it. All right. That's pretty good. Um, here's another verse. Let me give you this one. This is page 214 and page 215 in my recommended Bible. And uh, it is chapter 20 of Exodus, verse number 8. Let me read it to you. This is the fourth commandment about the Sabbath. Six days you must do all your work. Six days you shall work and do all your work. Okay, so uh, I've given you two verses for work. Let me give you another verse. Here is a verse on page 175 or 174, 175. And this is Exodus chapter 4, verse 23. Listen to this. Uh, Thus say the Lord, um, Israel is my... You've got to go to say to Pharaoh. This is a story of the burning bush. God speaking to Moses. Hey, you've got to go to Pharaoh and you've got to say to him, this is what the Lord God of Israel says Israel is my son, my firstborn, and I therefore say to you, let my son go that he may worship me. Okay, in the desert. Right? Um, I'll give you one more word, one more verse for worship. And this is on page 730 and 731, 731. This is Joshua, final chapter, verse 15. And this is uh, Joshua getting a little irritable with the people. And uh, he's saying, look, you know what, uh, if, if you're going to go after idols, you know, do whatever you got to do, do ever whatever you want to do. I just want you to know that as for me and my house, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what I've done is I've given you four verses. The first two were the word worsh- uh, work, right? Put God put Adam in the garden to work it. Six days you must work. And then I gave you another two verses. Let my people go so that they may worship me. And Joshua says, as for me and my family, we'll worship the Lord. Now, because you can look at the Hebrew, you will notice something amazing. And that is all four instances use the same Hebrew word, avodah, the same Hebrew word. And uh, I'll be talking about that a little bit further. But bottom line is, um, it is terribly important that we have confidence in what it is we're doing it doesn't matter what it is if you're weightlifting you better really have confidence you can lift that weight if you're doing any form of athletics or sports you got to know you can do it you got to have faith that you can do it and in the great life game of making money you've got to know that not only can you do it but you can do it as an upright decent person you can do it while retaining your dignity and your morality that making money is in itself a moral and virtuous act. 
And when you know that, it makes all the difference. So knowing that the Hebrew uses exactly the same word for working to make money and worshiping the Lord, we are able to understand this is a huge motivator for the people of Israel, a huge one. What it tells us is that taking care of business, looking after your customers, making money is another way of serving God. You can worship the Lord directly, or you can worship him and serve him by taking care of his children. Now, when you've absorbed that into your thinking, it is a huge factor in your ability to make money. Now, what uh, I want to do now is um, move into an interview. Okay, Forbes magazine has a book section. And uh, what happened is that uh, they featured uh, my book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. And then they wanted to interview me, which they did. They interviewed me in two parts. And basically, I, I listened to it recently and I said, you know what, my happy warriors uh, would be desiring to ask me those same questions and so i am pretty sure that some of the questions you'd like to ask me when we get together are asked to me by the interviewers on this forbes books program so if you don't mind i'm gonna play that for you i hope you enjoy it what well, you'd have to know from the hebrew is that the Hebrew word used is, in fact, the word avodah, which means work and worship. And this is the first and most significant insight into the huge Jewish edge that comes out of the Bible, which is essentially informing us that taking care of business is the Lord's work. That's precisely one way of serving the Lord. Doing your work, whether it's in the Garden of Eden or six days of the week you shall work, and worshipping the Lord, all part of the same idea. Welcome to 10 Talent Leader Talk on Forbes Books Radio, where Christian business leaders share wisdom and inspiring stories of God at work in their lives, with their families, in the companies they run, and in the lives of those they employ. And here are your hosts, Michael Seip number one best-selling author of the Avada Principle and founder of 10X Catalyst Groups at 10xgroups.com and Greg Stebbin from ForbesBooks.com. Michael Seip and I are here with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. He is also known as America's Rabbi. Rabbi Lappin is a noted rabbinic scholar, popular international speaker, and best-selling author of books that include Business Secrets from the Bible, Spiritual Success Strategies for Financial Abundance, Thou Shall Prosper, Ten Commandments for Making Money, and Buried Treasure, Secrets for Living from the Lord's Language, which he wrote with his wife, Susan. His website is rabbidaniellappin.com. He's on Twitter at Daniel Lappin. He's on Facebook. I love this. You need a rabbi. He hosts the Rabbi Daniel Lappin podcast as well as co-hosting the Ancient Jewish Wisdom TV show on the TCT network with his wife, Susan. He is one of America's most eloquent speakers and his ability to extract life principles from the Bible and transmit them in an entertaining manner, thus improving people's finances, family, and community life has brought countless numbers of Jews and Christians closer to their respective faiths. Rabbi Lappin, welcome. Thanks so much. Wonderful to be with you. Rabbi Lappin, this is Mike. I, I first heard you speak at a Christian conference in in Redding, California, called Heaven and Business, and I was absolutely fascinated 
by the fact that you're a Jewish rabbi and you came to talk to a conference of Christians about business. Then I read your book, Thou Shall Prosper, which was extremely insightful. And I recommend the book to business leaders all the time. I actually quoted you in my recent book, The Avada Principle. And so I'm just thrilled to be here with you today. So let's talk about being a rabbi and also a businessman. One sounds like a religious occupation and one sounds secular. So how do you put those two things together? Mike, they they go very, very closely together. And one of the the most compelling clues is uh, exactly the word you chose to name your own lovely book by. It's it's really important and I think worth perhaps sharing uh, with our listeners, and, and that is the following. Everyone who, with any passing Bible familiarity, is likely to be uh, aware that there's a verse early in Genesis, God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it. And I think many people will also be familiar with the fourth of the Ten Commandments in the 20th chapter of Exodus, which reads, Six days shalt thou do all thy work. So uh, I've quoted now two biblical verses about the word work. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to do uh, to work it, and the Sabbath means the seventh day you rest after you've done your work for six days. Now, I'm going to look at another two verses quickly, and these two verses aren't going to be on the word work. These two verses are going to be on the word worship. And uh, they're interesting. One of them is uh, at the burning bush. God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. The last one is in the closing chapter of the book of Joshua, where Joshua frustrated at the people's tendency to uh, seek idolatry, basically says to Israel, look, you folks can do whatever you like. But as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. So we've looked at, uh, and, and this is true in, in almost every translation of the Old Testament that I've come across, uh, we've got two verses that refer to work, and we've got two verses that refer to worship. And what one would not know without some degree of familiarity with what I call the Lord's language, actually not just me, but uh, but also the second governor of the Plymouth Colony himself, wrote the history of the Plymouth Plantation and wrote it the first uh, 20 pages or so in in his own Hebrew handwriting. He also uh, referred to it as the the Lord's language. But uh, what you'd have to know from the Hebrew is that the Hebrew word used in each of these four verses is exactly the same. It is, in fact, the word avodah, which means work and worship. And this is the first and most significant insight into the huge Jewish edge that comes out of the Bible, which is essentially informing us, because there's a general rule in Hebrew, which is any word that has different meanings, those meanings are all linked together, unlike in any other language. You know, in English, pale uh, is a pail of water, or it can mean uh, pale, or rose can be a flower, it can be uh, rising up. But in Hebrew, the words are all linked. So this is telling us that taking care of business, looking after customers and clients, is the Lord's work. That's precisely one way of serving the Lord, which then helps us understand why it is that even in languages 
such as English, for instance, we use the same word customer service as we use for worship service. There's a lingering awareness of this fundamentally critical idea in Hebrew thinking, which is that uh, doing your work, whether it's in the Garden of Eden or six days of the week you shall work, and worshiping the Lord, all part of the same idea. Because essentially, looking after your customers or looking after your clients from the perspective of our Father in heaven is really the same as we looking at our own children, looking after one another, being kind to one another, taking care of one another's needs. And most parents would rather see our children being nice to one another even than we'd like to see them being nice to us. And so that is one of the the very first and most important aspects of how to overcome the mistaken view that uh, that my religious life and my business life are two completely disconnected areas, one religious, one secular. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is holiness and divinity within my pursuit of profit. Rabbi, if you wouldn't mind, one of the things when, when I was researching the word avodah, if I'm saying that close to correctly, I sort of uh, corrupted it and called it avada. But uh, when I was researching it, I was fascinated by this idea that in, in Hebrew, um, one word could simultaneously mean multiple things. And, and you alluded to that through your comments just a minute ago. Could you just explain a little bit? Because when I tell people that who are just English speakers, they don't get it. So how is that possible? I'll give you a very good example. The, the Hebrew word olam means the universe or infinite space, and it also means forever or infinite time. Now, until the early 1900s, uh, with the Polish mathematician Hermann Minkowski, and then 10 years later, Albert Einstein, uh, nothing of what I'm about to say would have made a lot of sense. But essentially, what the Lord's language is revealing here is that the single word that means both infinite space and infinite time is suggesting that time and space are really one thing. And in saying that, I've just paraphrased what Hermann Minkowski said in the early 1900s, that from now onwards, in order for mathematics to continue, uh, we're going to have to start seeing space and time as two perspectives on exactly the same thing. And then, of course, 10 years later, Einstein's special theory of relativity, followed by the general theory, uh, verified this and, um, and, and confirmed that this was exactly the case. So, so it was no surprise to scholars of Hebrew at the time that, that the language made one word for both infinite space and one word for infinite time. Um, it, it would have seemed odd, excepting by the time the 20th century arrived, it made absolute sense, of course. Yes, indeed space and time should be one word in the ultimate because they really are inextricably bound together. Well, it feels a little odd to follow that up, Rabbi, with a question about Milton Friedman. Somehow from Einstein to Friedman feels a little uh, sort of an interesting juxtaposition. But as oh, I'm, we... I'm not sure. I'm not sure <laughs> in my own mind. I'm not sure who which one did more for humanity. Well, we're going to get to that exactly. 
<laughs> because as you know, as, as and I'm sure all our listeners know, in 1970, Milton Friedman basically said the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. And that's really been that's been the the view of business certainly in the United States ever since until recently an organization called the Business Roundtable which is 200 of the most influential CEOs in the country took a radical departure from that and declared that the purpose of business is much broader than that and includes customers, vendors, the community, and they actually named shareholders last. So given that, I want to know, in, what are your thoughts on, on that move by the Business Roundtable? And in general, what are your thoughts on the purpose of business? Well, I'm aware, of course, of the, the Business Roundtable, and I think those CEOs are going to rue the cowardly route they took in the hope of placating the the radical views of politicians right now. But the idea that politicians try their best to make private business pay the promises, the unfulfilled commitments made earlier by politicians in exchange for election, this is an old idea. Uh, Taxation is only one part of it, obviously. But uh, the idea that politicians will decree what is good and then place that burden upon businesses, this is nothing new. And it was was only surprising to me how rapidly uh, these CEOs surrendered instead of taking a stand and saying, look, when you create a long list of so-called stakeholders, lovely word that, stakeholders, it then becomes almost impossible to achieve anything at all, and we will make of business the same stalemate that we've succeeded in making of politics, because anybody who tries to be everything to all people achieves absolutely nothing for anybody. So uh, a bad, bad idea. This this obviously isn't the first time we've tried to, to tamper with certain fundamental ideas, and usually with, with, with disastrous results. And, and here, no difference. You see, the problem is that business is really, it's, it's simply a mechanism of human beings getting together to effect exchange. And so the real question is a question of freedom. Uh, is freedom actually the the ultimate sacrifice of this entire vendetta? And what I mean by that is that uh, business takes place when John says to Jeff, I would like whatever it is, a, a cord of wood or a, a, a piece of brain surgery, a repair to my uh, fuel injection system. But whatever it is, one human being says to another, I would like this goods or services from you, and here is what I would like to pay for that. And then there's a negotiation, and at the end of that, uh, the exchange is effected, and both human beings walk away happier than they were before, which is why God smiles on human economic transactions. And so now what we're saying is that if the two of you want to do a transaction, you, John and Jeff, and both of you are happy with it, and you're both eager to go ahead and do it, but the neighborhood in which you live wants you to erect low-income housing, 
they should both scratch their head and say, excuse me, what are you talking about? What's that got to do with us? We're doing a private exchange. This is something fundamental to the Constitution, and it is fundamental to all Western notions of human freedom. And, and so it's a huge step, this attempt to influence the idea of stakeholders on a corporation. And look, I mean, the end result, I'm not a prophet, but the end result is pretty obvious to anyone, which is you kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. It's not that hard. I mean, it's a fragile system to begin with. Of course, Milton Friedman was right about that. That's one of the reasons that uh, he was vilified extensively, particularly by left-leaning members of the academic class. And, and they, they despised when he, when he spoke that way about the fundamental purpose of a business. It remains that way because even if you only look at the list of stakeholders suggested and that the business roundtable picked up on, you will see how few of them are even defined. In other words, it's deliberately left vague so as that the list of demands that are placed on the uh, institution of business is literally without uh, limitation of any kind. Rabbi, it seems like underneath this is sort of an undercurrent or a cultural questioning of the fundamental dignity and morality of business. Like, uh, you know, is, is, is business actually really a bad thing? And so we've got to kind of plaster it with some of these other concepts. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think you, you, you get a very strong sense of that in the sense that uh, uh, there is um, every now and then and it's it's frequently a politician who manages to uh, drive incredible public resentment um, at the pay level of CEOs. Everybody nods their heads enthusiastically. Yeah, yeah, you know, let's get them. They're 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 getting paid too much. Now, uh, regard regardless for the moment of how you decide that and where they are, they aren't all we should be concerned about right now is why is it that the same people so eager to get the pitchforks and lanterns out to hunt down overpaid CEOs, where are they when it comes to overpaid sports heroes or overpaid movie stars? And the answer is that everybody understands that the guy who can grab a ball and run it down the field faster and further than anyone, well, yeah, he's doing something I cannot do. I get that. He deserves the big bucks. Or they look at a movie star and they say, look, that is one good-looking human being. When I look in the mirror every day, that's not what I see. So I, I, you're, you're I a pretty good-looking guy, though, Rabbi. I just, I just want to register that you look pretty good. I presume that is why you <laughs> insisted that this is a radio discussion, not a television. Well, discussion. I did mention that you also have a TV show, so we can see you on camera as well. But, but continue. I, I, I understand the point you're trying to make. I'll let you finish it. But when it comes to running a business, nobody knows what that entails. They simply do not understand. And so uh, to them, it's a big mystery. And to the socialist or the materialist, it's always been that way. When Stalin killed out five million kulaks and the Soviet Union went into a starvation mode for the next few years, they didn't starve because the farms didn't produce. 
the food was left rotting in the field. They starved because that business class, the business, the small merchants who bought the produce from farms and wagged it into the villages and the towns and sold it, they had been wiped out because Stalin was incapable of comprehending the role of that middleman to him. The public should be able to buy it at the lowest price, direct from the farmer. Why should that leech of a middleman be allowed to... Uh, to steal from everybody, and the fact that he was often a Jew <laughs> didn't hurt. But um, but that vision, that idea, that inability to comprehend the role of business, still continues to this very day. Since since we don't, as a as a culture necessarily, really understand business, from your perspective, what can the Bible teach us about business and about successfully running an enterprise? Uh, first of all. It teaches that business is about giving, not getting. And so the whole principle of credit comes out of the Bible. The whole idea of, of loans and, uh, and, and provision of capital, uh, a biblical idea. One of the reasons that no capital market ever uh, arose indigenously from a non-Christian country, from a non-biblical country, never happened. Today, you've got stock markets uh, in Accra and in Bangladesh and in Tokyo and everywhere else. But originally, stock markets emerged in Amsterdam and London. And, um, and there's a reason for that, because this whole concept of when we speak of the faith and credit of the government, uh, or the idea of in God we trust on coinage, not on the walls of churches, because uh, the Bible teaches that business operates strictly on the basis of the existence of faith. And it's only within an environment in which faith is valued that business can, in fact, function and flourish. Another one is a huge biblical emphasis on numbers. And again, in general, I think most people know that languages and cultures tend to have the most words for things that they treat as important. And so when the Inuit language reveals itself to have about 15 words for the word snow, it makes sense because subtle nuances of snow that I could care less about are really important to somebody who lives his life in that environment. And in the, in the same way, Hebrew has a surprisingly large number of words for the word number. And so, you've, you know, you've got the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. That's one of the words in Hebrew for numbers. And there are another four of them. And part of the, the background to that is how important numbers are. And once again, crucial to business, helping people understand that if, if you're trying to start a business, and I'm sure you've got a great idea, it's a new app or it's this or it's that, it's wonderful. But if I'm going to be an investor, I need to know that you can read a financial statement. Do you know what a P&L looks like? Can you read a table of receivables? Do you know what your payables look like? And above all, please show me your cash flow statement. Numbers are – and then the person says, never mind the numbers. Let me explain to you everything we're doing about it. And I say, no, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm better with numbers than stories. You give me the number, I'll tell you the story. But I, I want numbers. <laughs> I don't want stories from you. And so numbers are, are very important. The, the idea that business is at its heart spiritual, hugely important. And again, these are things, if we think about them, they become obvious, but these are things embedded in the Hebrew psyche. And they're things that, that, that people who are raised in a, 
uh, a Jewish Bible perspective know almost intuitively. But, you know, for instance, when in 1987, I think, uh, Chrysler bought Jeep for one and a half billion dollars. What did they get for their money? Jeep by that time was was a pretty rundown brand. Uh, Chrysler acquired a small little assembly plant outside Toronto, not worth a whole lot. So what did they pay one and a half billion for? Well, a billion of the pay was for nothing but the name of Jeep. Why is it important? Because in 1987, there was still a generation of people who grew up either having had parents or grandparents who fought World War II or who watched World War II movies, and they knew there was a thing called a Jeep that saved World War II. It was the vehicle of choice for the GI. There was nowhere a Jeep couldn't go. And because of that spiritual recollection, there was nothing tangible there. There was absolutely nothing that my pet gorilla could remotely have conceived of. And yet that was worth more than a billion dollars. And Iacocca was exactly right, turned into a big asset. But it's the, the, the spirituality of commerce is something which, again, is most quickly and easily understood from biblical teaching. I'm glad you said that, because I, I want to go back in time to the time of the Bible. And I want to ask a question, maybe it's a little conceptual. We know that the Bible is full of business wisdom because you've written books like Business Secrets from the Bible, Thou Shall Prosper, Ten Commandments for Making Money. But in the time of the Bible, was business what we think of as business today, or was it something more intrinsic to just the way that people interacted to, with one another? For instance, you use the word commerce. Were commerce and, and what we think of as business today two different things, or does it all boil down to that exchange that you talked about earlier? It boils down to... Uh, an incentivization system for caring about other people. What am I talking about? Can I, I'm going to say that one more time. It boils down to an incentivization system for caring about other people. You remember, and, and again, I mean, I, this is a business discussion, not a Bible discussion. Yeah. So I've got to sort of try and, uh, and keep focused on, on the numbers, if you like. But, but it's, it's hard to avoid fact that um, the opening chapters of the Bible, opening two chapters, uh, paint a picture of, of a rather cheerful deity. The earth is created, the, the, the natural world is created in six days, and numerous occasions during those six days, uh, the, the wording says, and God saw that it was good. And the very first time we see God getting grumpy, as a matter of fact, is in chapter 2. is the very first time we get anything negative about God, and he says, God says, not good for what? For man to be alone. Now, uh, again, in the translation, it doesn't come across nearly as clearly as it does in the Hebrew original, in that uh, when God says, not good for man to be alone, this is not specifically and exclusively a prescription for Adam's matrimonial prospects. No. That what we're talking about is God's perception that what this is all about is for people to get together with one another, for people to connect with one another, and for people to convert that connection into communication and cooperation and ultimately creativity as well, uh, in and of itself. 
And so from a uh, perspective of ancient Jewish wisdom, God essentially sets up two incentivization systems to encourage people to not only get together, but to care more about someone else than themselves. And one of those systems is called sex, and the other is called money. We hope you'll join us for part two of this interview where we delve into politics, public service, and of course, the biblical perspective on money and sex. We teach business people again and again and again, focus on customer satisfaction. You know, and and what marital advice do we give newly married men, you know? Uh, God wants human beings to care for one another, to care more for others than for themselves, and to connect and collaborate with one another for better purposes, to produce more things. And again, please join us for part two of this interview. Welcome to part two of this 10 Talent Leader Talk on Forbes Books Radio, where Christian business leaders share wisdom and inspiring stories of God at work in their lives, with their families, in the companies they run, and in the lives of those they employ. Let's continue our conversation with Rabbi Daniel Lappin, the best-selling author of multiple books, including Business Secrets from the Bible. He is also the host of the TV show Ancient Jewish Wisdom on the TCT Network. You can find him on Facebook at You Need a Rabbi and at RabbiDanielLappin.com. And here are your hosts, Michael Seip, number one best-selling author of The Avada Principle and founder of 10X Catalyst Groups at 10XCatalystGroups.com and Greg Stebbin from ForbesBooks.com. Um, as a general observation, I'd say that many, if, uh, if not most Christians, have, uh, shall we say, a complicated perspective uh, on making money and on accumulating wealth. Our, our theology of money is, uh, I don't know, is a technical term. We're just messed up on it. And we, we're, we're sort of morally confused. Talk to us about money. Is it good? Is it bad? What's your perspective on it? Well, let's first note that in the same way that there's, let us say, a certain uh, theological ambivalence about money in, in, in parts of various religions, I think you'd agree that something similar exists with respect to sex. There we are back to that same topic. If you didn't say it, I was going to. And so on the one hand, uh, people say, well, how can something that produces life on earth not be holy? But on the other hand, how can something that's the source of sensual pleasure possibly be holy? And the same thing is said with respect to money. On the one hand, look at all the good you can do with it. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, look at how it makes people venal and greedy. And so you, you have tremendous confusion about it. From a Jewish biblical perspective, um, it's really a, a lot simpler. And that is that both those activities, making money and having sex, both involve a man becoming a better man than he was before and caring more about somebody else than he cares about himself. And that is exactly why uh, we, we teach business people again and again and again, focus on customer satisfaction. 
you know, and, and what marital advice do we give newly married men, you know? Focus on her satisfaction. <laughs> I mean, this, this, and I, I know it sounds funny, but, but I'm actually being really, really no, very I, serious we about get it. this. Uh, and that is that uh, God wants human beings to care for one another, to care more for others than for themselves, and to connect and collaborate with one another for better purposes, to produce more things. And so, yes, sex is one model of that interaction, and money is uh, is another, where we we do care for the other person's satisfaction. We want the customer to know he's always right. And as traders and as commercial specialists and as business professionals, that's exactly what we're going to do. And so when it comes to money, you ask, is money good or bad? The, the reality is that the terminology has to be slightly adjusted because good and bad only applies to human beings. For instance, if a wolf um, eats the sheep of a rancher in Colorado, we don't hold a conference to discuss the declining morality of wolves. Hmm. We accept that there isn't such a thing as the morality of wolves. Wolves do what they do. And we speak to the farmer and we say, you're going to have to figure out a way to look after your sheep in a better way. In the same way, there is no such thing. I mean, are guns good or bad? Well, I guess it depends. If you manage to save your, your family from vicious predators who, uh, who, who plan uh, brutality and cruelty, well, then probably good. And if a gun is used to hold up a convenience store and make off with their takings of the week, probably bad. Yeah, that's right. There is no such thing as objects being good or bad. Only human beings can be used in the context of good and bad with any sense. And so uh, money is no more good or bad than a wrench is or an adding machine is or a uh, table is. Uh, money is something. But what we can ask is, is it physical or spiritual? That we can certainly ask. And by spiritual, I'm not wearing my rabbi hat. I'm wearing my physicist hat. And that is to say that spiritual is simply something that cannot be measured in a laboratory. So a tune is spiritual. I can weigh a saxophone and I can measure a violin, but there's no way to measure a tune. Hmm. There, is, there is no way that anybody can run a tune through a machine and have the machine say if this is going to be a hit. It's nothing but vibrating air molecules all the way up to the, the human being's uh, eardrum. It's only after that that it gets processed in the brain and in the soul, as I would put it, uh, that we determine whether it's a happy tune or a sad tune. So tunes are spiritual. You cannot measure them. Musical instruments are physical. Now, how about money? Well, we quickly see that money obviously isn't physical because is money those discs of metal or strips of colored paper? Or how about the orientation of uh, iron oxide molecules on the back of your credit card or magnetized ones or zeros on the hard drive at your financial institution? Or how about if you write a check for $10? Have you just brought money into existence? Oh, forget it. How about you shake hands with somebody and say, I'll give you $10 on Friday? Have you just brought money into existence? And the answer to all those things is yes, because money is an abstraction. It's something spiritual, not physical. And that's really important. I want to ask about the word desire, the desire to make money. 
and the desire to accumulate wealth. It seems to me that it it might be different or at least worthy of conversation about making money versus the desire to do it. Is is there something inherently suspicious about someone who has the desire to make money and accumulate wealth? I don't want to sound prejudiced against the political class, but if there is any suspicion or any awkwardness or concern about any desire at all, it would be for people who express an ambition to go into your pardon, the euphemism, go into public service. Somebody who tells me he wants to go into public service means politics, of course. All that tells me is there are 10 more things in my wallet because he wants to be paid. (laughs) But how about the uh, young woman who says that she wants to start up a company and become a millionaire before she's 30? Well, the only way she's going to be able to do that, because she, unlike the guy going into politics, she lacks the ability to extract money from my pocket by coercion. She can only get it with my willing collaboration. And the only way she can do that is by giving me something that I value more than the money, either in goods or services. And so I much prefer the the person who says they want to make money because they're not threatening my freedom in any way whatsoever. But the person who goes into, quote, public service manages to somehow uh, do quite a lot of accumulating wealth, usually while speaking about the need for doing good and speaking about how corporations need to expand their understanding of stakeholders. But um, somebody who's engaged in the process of enlarging his finances is probably engaged in one of the most harmless undertakings imaginable. Why would that bother me? He has no ability to extract money from me. He can only get it from me if I actually wish to give it to him. And so people talk about, oh, big business, big business. I'm much more worried about big government than I am a big business. And if somebody expresses a desire to make money and accumulate wealth, why is this a problem for me? Why does it bother me? Because in an open and transparent marketplace, which for the most part in the Western world today we have, it is absolutely impossible for that person to make money and accumulate wealth without pleasing a whole lot of other people. I, I certainly don't mean any anything harmful here or offensive, but it'll probably be offensive anyway. But um, who's done more good for more people, Bill Gates or Mother Teresa? Well, with the best will in the world, in her hospice in Calcutta, the saintly lady might have taken care of what 200,000 people all her life, maybe. But Bill Gates has improved the lives of millions of people because everybody who bought a copy of Windows operating system and everybody who bought a copy of Word, every one of those people did so because that purchase improved their lives. And so in all honesty, we would have to say that Bill Gates has done more good for more human beings than Mother Teresa did. Now, would God view their souls in that same way? I have no idea. He never confided in me to that. And I don't have to. Nobody appointed me to be the moral arbiter of anybody. But in terms of the good done for human beings that I can figure out, and somebody seeking to make money and and acquire a fortune, another way of putting that is his 
spending day and night trying to figure out a way of pleasing me. Why is that bad? In my book, The Avada Principle, I explore a key principle, a biblical principle for living an integrated life. Um, it has its roots, as you mentioned earlier, in the Hebrew word avadah. And I'm sure there's other biblical principles or maybe some key verses that are really fundamental or special to you personally in, in how you live and, and principles that shape how you lead. Would you be kind enough to share one or two of those and, and how it's been important to you? The idea of relationships as being at the root of everything is, is terribly, terribly important. The idea that uh, disconnectedness and solitude are destructive um, the the idea that marriage is a fundamental part of God's plan for human existence and for social structure, uh, tremendously important. So I, I do I try to do whatever I can to help people um, with their marital relationships as well as with their monetary relationships, because in the final analysis. That is, when you think about family, right? I mean, where would we be without our families? But the reason you have uncles and aunts and the reason you have cousins is because many years ago, grandpa and grandma uh, found ecstasy in one another's arms. I mean, that's, that's what happened. And, and that created the thing called family, which is so important in all our lives. And in the same way, another way that we interact with people on a considerably less intimate basis but on a no less significant basis is something that allows two complete strangers to interact with one another in a way that makes both of them happier than they were before. This is called money and financial transactions. And so uh, as uh, certainly as, as a rabbi and as a businessman, I'm, I'm very much focused on, on the idea that God gave us a blueprint for the improving of lives and for the creation of fulfilling and productive lives. And that yes, they revolve around relationships as at, at their very heart and at their very core. The very first negative awareness we have of God is alone isn't good. Conversely, it's, it's, it's axiomatic that togetherness is good. And that's brought about through both marriage and money. And both are under attack in today's culture. So that's that's sort of where I'm 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 somewhat focused at the moment. I'm going to follow that up by pointing people to your TV show, Ancient Jewish Wisdom, on the TCT network. You can get there on Rabbi Lappin's website. It's rabbidaniellappin.com. He also has a podcast there. He's the author of a great number of best-selling books, including Business Secrets from the Bible, Spiritual Success Strategies for Financial Abundance, Thou Shall Prosper, Ten Commandments for Making Money, and Buried Treasure, which he wrote with his wife Susan, Secrets for Living from the Lord's Language. Uh, there's also on his website a really Rabbi, remarkable thing you do there called Ask the Rabbi. I love that. And obviously I love it because we've just been doing it. That's exactly right. Uh, The website again is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Lappin is L-A-P-I-N, RabbiDanielLappin.com. He's on Twitter, at Daniel Lappin. And on Facebook, just to cap it off, you need a rabbi. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, and please stay in touch, both of you. It's been lovely talking. Thank you very much. I feel like we just cut to the chase and uh, and got to ask you uh, exactly what we wanted. And it's been delightful. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show. You're most welcome. I'm delighted to enjoy being with you very much. Thank you. 
So that's it, my friends, and uh, I sure hope you enjoyed that. I hope it did uh, have me answering at least some questions that you might have wanted to ask me as well. Um, so that is it. All I have left is to tell you that if you do not yet own the download, Prosperity Power, Connect for Success, it's about two hours of teaching on connection. Uh, this idea that uh, your financial welfare, your ability to generate revenue is very closely associated with how effectively you connect with other people. I discuss that in detail along with very practical hands-on strategies. So um, go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, head over to the store. Uh, you may want to read more about Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible. If you can get it, just go ahead and get it. It is something that, regardless of where you stand personally in terms of faith, uh, for an educated and uh, accomplished human being not to own the most influential volume in the history of humanity, it's madness, I tell you. So, it doesn't matter. You need this in your shelves. And by the way, once it's in your shelves... Um, you will discover that occasionally, when you're entirely by yourself, so nobody can see you and embarrass you, you will sneak a peek into this monumental volume, and you will find yourself suffused with some inexplicable and deep spiritual satisfaction. But that's letting you into other secrets that I'm not ready to fully disclose at the moment. At any rate, RabbiDanielLappin.com. Take a look at Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible, please. And if you can get it, just go ahead and get it. And secondly, regardless of wherever you live, you can download Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. Go ahead. If you do not have that yet, please get it. And you know what? Believe me, I really don't mind if you share it with friends. Uh, we don't have any locks on it like Apple Music does. We have no uh, mechanism to prevent you because this is just good for everybody to know. It's pretty important stuff, and uh, not knowing it is definitely a handicap in your quest for building connections for both romance and finance, both of those two areas. So I want to wish you a fantastic week up ahead, and um, I hope you will have nothing but good times with your family, with your faith, yes, your faith, your friendships, your fitness, and your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you all.